Early in the morning of November 22, 1963, Linnie Mae Randall looked out the window of her home in Irving, Texas, and spotted a man walking across her lawn toward her brother's car. It was Lee Oswald. Lee worked with Linnie's brother, Wesley Frazier, at the Texas School Book Depository in downtown Dallas. He kept an apartment close to work, but he came to Irving on the weekends to visit his wife, Marina, and two children who were staying with one of Linnie Mae's neighbors at the time. He carpooled with Wesley whenever he came to Irving. Linnie Mae was in a rush, and Wesley was running late, so she didn't stop to wonder why Lee was there on a Friday morning when he normally only made it out on the weekends. She also didn't wonder about the package Lee carried with him. It was a few feet long, with one end slightly wider than the other, and wrapped in brown paper. Lee carried it like a marching soldier might carry a rifle. As Wesley and Lee began their commute, Wesley asked what was in the package. Lee said it was curtain rods. Of course, these curtain rods were in fact a loaded 6.5 caliber Carcano rifle, the weapon that Lee would later use to gun down President John F. Kennedy. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Every week, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. Welcome to Assassinations. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, who was killed on November 22, 1963, by Lee Oswald. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. It takes two to make an assassination, an assassin and a target. In our last episode, we discussed the origins and upbringings of John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald. In this episode, we'll look at what the year 1963 was like for both of these men, leading up to the historic, horrible day of November 22, 1963. We'll examine the political climate that led Kennedy to Dallas on that fateful day, as well as the timeline of Lee Harvey Oswald from when he left his wife's house in Irving to the minute he pulled the trigger. We should clarify. In this show, we're only discussing the known or generally accepted facts, not conspiracy theories. If you're interested in the theories about this topic or any other topic, be sure to check out Parcast's other show, Conspiracy Theories. Lee Oswald was ready. The target was in his sights. All he had to do was pull the trigger and everything would change. He would become famous in an instant as an assassin. He paused just for a minute to consider his wife. If he was caught, her life would be ruined. She wouldn't believe it at first. She'd refuse to accept that her husband was capable of something like this. She doesn't matter right now. Lee's on a self-appointed mission and he's going to see it through. It's nearly the moment of truth. The target has no idea that Lee is there. He doesn't suspect a thing. Why would he? Powerful men like him never think that they can be taken down. 
Lee's going to change that. He had grabbed his rifle from where he had hit it, and now he was in position. The target's head is in his crosshairs. It's time to shock the world. The bullet shattered the window looking into the study, fragmenting on the frame and sending shrapnel in all directions. The intended target, disgraced Army Major General Edwin Walker, didn't realize he'd just been shot at until he looked at his arm and saw that he'd been hit by some of the bullet fragments. Then he held his hand to his head and felt the blood. Lee Oswald might have thought that he'd made his shot, or he just didn't want to risk a second attempt. Either way, he was long gone before the police arrived. He arrived back at his home to find his wife Marina awake and enraged. Lee had left a note in the event he was arrested or killed while trying to take out Walker. In the note, Lee left instructions for Marina to follow that would help her move on with her life as if you can assassinate someone and not have your loved ones fall under a media storm. Marina knew that Lee was obsessed with cementing his place in history. She just had never suspected that drive would push him to try to kill someone. She made Lee promise that he would never try to kill someone again. Lee kept his promise up until November 22, 1963, the day Kennedy died. Oswald's attempted assassination of Edwin Walker on April 10, 1963, is a fascinating footnote in the saga of John F. Kennedy's assassination. The event was part of a pattern of violent urges and desperation that culminated in Oswald's murder of President Kennedy. And yet, he almost got away with it. In the immediate aftermath of the attack on Walker, there were no suspects. Police only linked Oswald to the crime after they ran ballistics on his rifle, recovered in the manhunt following Kennedy's assassination. Lee wanted to go down in history, and he was willing to kill someone to achieve that goal. If he had succeeded in killing Walker on that April night, then President Kennedy might have lived to see the end of 1963. Lee's attempt on Walker's life was the result of a lifetime of frustration, Oswald and his new family were not in a great place at the start of 1963. Lee was 23, and he was nursing a bruised ego. His attempt to defect to the Soviet Union had failed, and he had been forced to return to the United States with his new wife and infant daughter. Marina Oswald didn't speak English, so Lee was the sole breadwinner for the family. That was difficult. We discussed in the last episode how Lee was egotistical and antisocial. He had trouble getting along with others, and thus it was a challenge for him to hold down a job. His first job after his return to America in the summer of 1962 was at a welding company, but he was fired after only two months. Sometime in late 1962, Lee started as a trainee at a photography firm. At the same time, Lee was remaining actively involved in the communist movement. Though he had failed to last as a citizen of the Soviet Union, Lee still identified as a devout Marxist. He became involved in the local chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, an organization that raised awareness of and protested the United States' actions in Cuba. 
It was Lee's involvement in Cuban affairs that likely led him to decide to try and kill General Walker. Retired American Army Major General Edwin Walker was a right-wing, anti-communist, anti-civil rights zealot who, following a decorated military career, fell into disgrace after a brief attempt to make it in politics in the early 1960s. Walker had served in World War II and the Korean War and remained on active duty under the administration of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was forced to resign from his position in the Army in 1961 after he was charged with violating the Hatch Act, which prohibited military commanders from influencing the voting decisions of their troops. Following his resignation, Walker toured the country with Billy Hargis, an evangelical preacher, giving speeches in support of McCarthyism and public school segregation. He made television appearances where he urged people to protest outside schools that were admitting black students. After one such speech incited a riot that killed two people, Walker was arrested and sentenced to 90 days in a mental hospital. He was released after only five days. It's not entirely clear when Oswald became aware of Walker, but it was most likely on March 5, 1963. Walker gave an impassioned speech where, among other things, he said that the army should kill any and all communists in the United States. The speech was covered by the Dallas Times-Herald. A week later, on March 12th, Lee armed himself. Lee used the facilities at the photography firm where he worked to make a fake passport under the name Alec Heidel. On March 12th, Lee used this fake identification to mail order a second-hand 38 caliber revolver and the infamous Carcano rifle. At around the same time, Lee began performing recon missions of Walker's home in Dallas. He photographed the windows in order to find the spots where Walker would be most vulnerable. Lee also buried his rifle in a field near the house so that he could retrieve it when it came time for his mission. On April 10, 1963, Lee waited until Marina and baby June were asleep. Lee didn't have a car. If he was going to kill General Walker, he was going to have to use public transportation to get there. A taxi was too risky. The driver would be able to identify Lee if police realized the shooter used a cab. Lee took the bus. He dug up the rifle and got in position. Walker was where he was most nights, seated at the desk in his study, working. Recall that when Lee was in the Marines, his shooting scores had classified him as a sharpshooter. It's very odd that he would miss a shot at an unmoving target. Maybe Lee got cold feet at the last minute. That's unlikely, but this was by all accounts his first attempt to actually kill someone. Or maybe the shot was just unlucky, and Lee just chose to run rather than take another one. Regardless, Lee's bullet grazed Walker's head and fragments embedded in his forearm after shattering against the wall. Lee buried the gun and ran, taking the bus back home. It's particularly interesting that Lee got away with this attempt. Though Walker had fallen from grace and alienated himself from Americans who weren't racist extremists, he was still a decorated war veteran. And more importantly, Oswald was already on the FBI's radar at this time. The FBI had files on both Lee and Marina. 
As former residents of the Soviet Union, they were both on watch lists as potential spies. Lee, in particular, had remained a focus of the FBI. Given his pro-Cuban actions and previous attempt to defect to the Soviet Union, it's certainly odd that he wasn't connected to Walker, an outspoken anti-communist speaker. We'll discuss the fact that Lee, a man with an FBI file who was supposedly under surveillance, managed to get away with killing the President of the United States later in this episode. After Lee's failed attempt to kill Walker, his year continued as one might expect. He was fired from the photography firm in April of 1963, allegedly for starting fights. Marina and June moved in with Ruth Payne, a friend that Marina knew from a Russian language class. Lee tried to move his family to New Orleans, where he had landed a job at a coffee machine factory, but once again, he was fired after only a few weeks. The family returned to Dallas, and Marina, who was now pregnant with their second child, moved back in with Ruth. Lee rented a room closer to downtown Dallas, where he looked for work. He caught a break in October, when he was hired at the Texas School Book Depository in downtown Dallas. It was from the sixth floor of that building that Lee Oswald would shoot President Kennedy on November 22, 1963. In the fall of 1963, President Kennedy was preparing to announce his campaign for re-election. Given his general popularity as a president, it was assumed at that time that re-election would be in the bag for Kennedy. However, that wasn't necessarily the case. In the 1960 election, Kennedy had defeated Nixon in electoral votes, but had only won the popular vote by less than two-tenths of a percent. He would need to campaign effectively if he wanted to stay in office for four more years, and he knew that meant going to Dallas. The Texas Democratic Party had been locked in a power struggle between Texas Governor John Connolly, Vice President Lyndon Johnson, and Senator Ralph Yarborough. Johnson was a Texan and had used his position as Vice President to make presidential appointments, including judges and postmasters. In doing so, he had robbed Yarborough of significant influence over these positions, as it was normally the right of a senator to make such appointments. Yarborough, naturally, was not pleased. As 1963 ended, Kennedy knew he needed to straighten things out. Though Kennedy had won Texas in the 1960 election, he had lost Dallas. In fact, Dallas was the only major American city that didn't swing to Kennedy. So, in early November of 1963, Kennedy announced plans to visit Texas on a five-city tour as part of a broader tour of battleground southern states. His aim here was twofold. One, he would sit down with the feuding Texas Democrats and get everyone on the same page under his leadership. And two, he would begin campaigning in earnest in Texas in preparation for the 1964 campaign. On November 21, 1963, Kennedy and his wife, Jackie, boarded Air Force One bound for San Antonio. He would not leave the state alive. Coming up, we'll discuss Kennedy's schedule as he made his fateful journey to Dealey Plaza in downtown Dallas. Now, back to the story. The sun rose at 6.33 a.m. on the morning of November 22, 1963. 
It was 7.30 a.m. when valet George Thomas entered Suite 850 at the Texas Hotel in Fort Worth, Texas, to wake up the Commander-in-Chief. The weather was overcast with light rain. Kennedy was disappointed. If the rain held, it would put a damper on his plans to ride the presidential motorcade with the top down later that day. But the president had a full day's schedule to worry about before that. At nine that morning, he was set to deliver a speech in the parking lot of the hotel. The crowd had been eagerly waiting for hours already. John's wife, Jackie, was sleeping in another room. He decided to let her sleep and sat up to face the day. In the neighboring city of Dallas, Wesley Frazier parked his car where he always did, across the train tracks from the Texas School Book Depository. Lee got out of the car while Wesley killed the engine. Lee started walking toward the building alone, carrying his long package of curtain rods under his arm while Wesley locked the car. That was odd. The two men normally walked together. Back in Fort Worth, Kennedy began his morning routine at 8 a.m. We talked in our last episode about John Kennedy's numerous health issues. His Addison's disease made him prone to infection. The malaria he had contracted during World War II still occasionally flared up and made him feverish. His tan skin, which had made him famous on the campaign trail as kind of a bronzed all-American man, was actually an intentional effort to cover his face's discoloration from a lifetime of sickness. On the morning of November 22nd, Kennedy shaved, took a number of antibiotics and hormone pills meant to combat the symptoms of his Addison's disease, and then set about managing his biggest handicap. Kennedy's most debilitating medical issue by far was the chronic back pain caused by his spine. Though in public, Kennedy always made every effort to appear as a picture of health. In private, he would often walk with a cane or even crutches when the pain was particularly bad. He was on a number of painkillers, some of which were not prescribed and might have even been illegal. When he had to stand on his own, he would wear risers in his shoes to help with his posture. Finally, Kennedy wore a stiff elastic corset under his shirt that immobilized his lower back and made it possible, if not entirely comfortable, for him to put on the appearance that he could walk without pain. Kennedy wrapped himself in the corset as he had done nearly every day for over 10 years. As he dressed himself, he looked out the window of his suite at the gathering crowd in the parking lot of the hotel. Kennedy finished dressing and made a last-minute decision to allow Jackie to sleep a little while longer, even though that meant she would miss the speech. John's wife was a popular public figure, and Kennedy's team saw the benefit of having her at John's side as he geared up his campaign. However, John and Jackie's infant son, Patrick, had died only a few months before, and both parents were still grieving. Kennedy's pre-speech schedule was light. He only had a short briefing before he was set to give his speech. At 8.30, Kennedy met with his Air Force aide, General Godfrey McHugh, for a daily brief on the military situation in Vietnam. He checked the day's headlines, which included coverage on the fact that Kennedy's portrait had been removed from an Abilene office in the American Legion. Kennedy, according to the Legion, was too controversial. The biggest news Kennedy read that morning concerned the city of Dallas's reaction to his visit. 
Kennedy knew that his 9 a.m. Fort Worth speech was the easy part of his day. The real challenge would come later that morning when the presidential party traveled over to Dallas. Dallas was a deeply conservative hub in the South, but the city had earned a small degree of infamy in the weeks leading up to the visit for how it treated visiting Democrats. The previous month, UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson had visited Dallas to give a speech but was met with an unruly crowd of right-wing protesters, one of whom had actually hit the ambassador with a sign. In one of those random coincidences, the protest had actually been organized by retired General Edwin Walker, the other man whom Lee Oswald had tried to kill. To the rest of the country, this incident just confirmed the stereotype that Dallas was a nest of right-wing extremists, and Stevenson himself had urged Kennedy to avoid the city due to the ugliness he'd encountered there. Kennedy refused to change the plan. He wouldn't accept that an American president couldn't visit an American city. The leadership and businessmen of Dallas had been deeply embarrassed by the national attention brought on the city by the Stevenson incident. They wanted to ensure that the president, and by extension, the rest of the nation, saw Dallas as a welcoming, civilized city. To that end, the Dallas and the Fort Worth Police Departments had 350 officers on duty, ready to put a stop to any unruly behavior during the president's visit. Kennedy left his hotel room at 8.50. In the lobby, he met up with Vice President Johnson, Congressman Jim Wright, Governor Connolly, and Senator Yarborough, among others. They exited the building out to the parking lot where people have been gathered since five that morning to hear the president speak. Johnson introduced Kennedy, who began his speech with apologizing that Jackie wasn't there. I appreciate your being here this morning. Mrs. Kennedy is organizing herself. It takes longer. But of course she looks better than we do when she does it. But we appreciate your welcome. This city's been a great Western city. It was a short speech, and Kennedy finished by 9 a.m. He and his party returned to the hotel for a formal breakfast in the Grand Ballroom. He managed some FaceTime with Senator Yarborough and ordered Yarborough to ride with Johnson in his limo when they all left for Dallas. This would provide the process with ample photo opportunities for the two rivals smiling and waving together, as if the feud had been forgotten. Yarbrough tried to object, but Kennedy was having none of it. Jackie arrived just after the breakfast began, around 9.20. Kennedy kept the crowd in good spirits. The president of the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce presented Kennedy with his own 10-gallon cowboy hat for the rain. Kennedy was famous for his desire to not look ridiculous, so he appeased the cheering crowd that he would try the hat on once he got back to Washington. As Kennedy was wrapping up his breakfast, Lee Oswald was going on about what his co-workers would later describe as an ordinary workday. Lee's job at the book depository was to fill orders, so he spent most of the workday on his feet, moving from floor to floor and picking books out of the catalog of thousands stored at the building. That's what Lee was doing in the morning of November 22nd. At around 9.30 or 10, Lee's co-worker, James Jarman, spotted Lee staring out a window on the first floor that looked out on the intersection of Elm Street and South Houston. People were already starting to gather. 
Lee asked James what was going on. James explained that they were probably getting in position to see the president when he drove by later that day. Lee considered that and then asked his follow-up question. Do you know which way he's coming? John and Jackie Kennedy were back in their suite by 10.15. They had around an hour before they had to leave for Caswell Air Force Base to make the short flight to Dallas. John wasn't in the best mood. One of his aides, Ken O'Donnell, had showed him a full-page ad taken out in that day's Dallas Morning News by the American Fact-Finding Committee. The ad welcomed the president to Dallas and then proceeded to list 10 questions. Among them, why has the foreign policy of the United States degenerated to the point that the CIA is arranging coups and having staunch anti-communist allies of the U.S. bloodily exterminated? Jackie was upset. She couldn't believe that a newspaper would be allowed to print something like that. John was more cynical. He said to his wife and to Ken that it would not be a very difficult thing to shoot the president of the United States. All you'd have to do is get to a tall building with a high-powered rifle that had a telescopic sight, and there's nothing anyone could do. He actually said that. At 11 a.m., the presidential party left for Dallas. It would have only taken about half an hour to drive the distance, but Kennedy's aides wisely knew that the photo opportunity of the first couple stepping off Air Force One was too good a PR opportunity to pass up. They drove to Caswell Air Force Base. As Kennedy had ordered, Yarborough rode with the vice president, and the press got a number of shots of the two men smiling. The flight from Fort Worth to Dallas lasted all of 13 minutes. Kennedy used those minutes wisely, forcing Governor Connolly and Senator Yarborough to speak to him, and more importantly, speak to one another face to face. On that particular day, Yarborough was incensed that Connolly, who was firmly sided with Johnson in the feud, had arranged a fundraiser for Texas Democrats and had pointedly neglected to invite Yarborough's wife. Kennedy managed to smooth things out between the two men. At the very least, he had resolved one issue. As they descended into Dallas, the president was in good spirits. The weather had improved in the hours between Kennedy's speech and their touchdown in Dallas. The rain was gone, the clouds had cleared up, and the temperature had risen to a comfortable 63 degrees. As the plane landed and Kennedy looked out the window at the crowd of press and onlookers who had gathered to welcome him to Dallas, he turned to O'Donnell. The trip is turning out terrific, and it looks like everything is going to be fine for us. In less than an hour, he would be dead. Coming next, we'll cover Kennedy's fateful drive and his final minutes. Now, back to the story. We're going to be going through a quote-unquote official account of Kennedy's final hours. Note that there's going to be some ambiguity about the story. We obviously don't know every single fact about the assassination. If we did, well, there wouldn't be nearly as many conspiracy theories on this subject. John and Jackie Kennedy stepped off Air Force One on November 22nd at 11.45 a.m. to greet the crowd of spectators. The Secret Service, led by agents Bill Greer and Roy Kellerman, had assumed that day that Love Field would be the biggest security risk as it was the only part of the trip where the president would be outside the car, face to face with the public. And Kennedy didn't shy from the greeting crowd. He got close to many of them. 
I was able to uh, get there early and uh, probably real early and, and therefore was one of the first ones along the fence, uh, even though I didn't know that's, that the president would be walking that close. The Secret Service's assumptions were not misguided. Though most of the crowd waiting on the tarmac to greet the president were enthusiastic, there were rumblings of discontent. People further away sported signs that read, Yankee, go home, and you're a traitor. John and Jackie acted like they didn't see it. It's unsettling, to say the least, but neither wanted to allow the site to ruin what had otherwise been a positive experience. The presidential motorcade at Love Field was centered around the president's limousine, codename SS100X. The vehicle was a modified Lincoln convertible with an optional plastic cover to protect passengers from the rain. Additionally, there were retractable running boards, which would allow Secret Service agents to ride on the outside of the car, flanking the president. Kennedy had been pleased with the reception in Dallas thus far, and didn't want the Secret Service to use the boards for the trip to Dallas Trademark, where he was scheduled to have lunch with Dallas leadership and businessmen. The president's security detail hurried him along, ushering him and the party into the presidential limousine. Greer drove, with Kellerman in the passenger seat. Governor Connolly and his wife Nellie took the middle, and John and Jackie sat in the back seat. Since the rain had stopped and the motorcade had decided the rain cover was unnecessary, the public would have an unobstructed look at the president and the first lady as they rode by. At 11.55 a.m., the presidential motorcade departed Love Field Airport. Police had completely cleared the road to allow the president an uninterrupted drive to the trademark. Under a sunny Dallas sky, the crowds came in groups from all generations. Parents brought strollers, parents brought their elderly parents in wheelchairs. They converged onto this triangular grassy area and Elm Street was closed off. It was noon and the employees of the Texas School Book Depository had begun their usual lunch break. The workers discussed the crowd outside and whether they'd take the time to find a spot in the building to watch the president go by. One of the workers, Charlie Givens, realized he'd left his cigarettes in his jacket on the sixth floor. He went to retrieve them and was surprised to find Oswald walking along the boxes with a clipboard. Oswald simply said he wouldn't be joining the rest of the men for lunch, and Givens didn't think much more of it. Oswald was an odd duck and a bit of a loner, but he was a good worker. Givens and some of the other men changed positions a few times in preparation for the president's pass. They went outside at first and then ultimately decided to go to the fifth floor where they could look down on Elm Street at the passing motorcade. The motorcade hit a stop at 12.06 after the president spotted a group of school children who carried a sign that read, Mr. President, please shake our hands. He did, of course, to the delight of the children. Kellerman had to work to keep the crowd under control. Once the bystanders saw that Kennedy had stopped, they started to swarm. But within minutes, the motorcade was back on the move. They were making good time. At 12.15, the crowd was growing at Dealey Plaza, the grassed area across the street from the Texas School Book Depository where Kennedy would pass. Arnold Rowland and his wife Barbara were among the onlookers looking to get in position for the best view of the passing president. As Arnold looked around, 
he spotted something that stood out to him. A man in the window of the building across the street. He was lean with dark hair. In his arms was a rifle, at least a 22 caliber by Arnold's count. Arnold got his wife's attention and told her to look at the building. There was a secret service man up there. Barbara looked, but the man had moved. Arnold didn't tell any of the nearby officers about the man. The motorcade slowed down just after 12.20 as it continued its trek down Main Street toward Dealey Plaza. This part of the trip had the largest crowds and the cars needed to slow down for safety. It was 12.25 when dressmaker Abraham Zapruder arrived at Dealey Plaza. He had planned to watch the motorcade through the window of his store, which was nearby, but upon realizing that it would be impossible to get a look at the president with the gathering crowd, he set out with his secretary and his brand new 8mm movie camera. He passed through the crowd, eventually stopping at a raised area on the west end of the plaza, where he'd have an unobstructed view of the passing cars. He checked the lens of his camera and readied himself to film. As the motorcade was halfway down Main Street, FBI agent James Hostie Jr. breathed a sigh of relief. Hostie had been tasked with monitoring right-wing extremist activity in Dallas, and he'd been worried there might be some kind of incident. But everything seemed to be going smoothly. Hostie walked into a nearby restaurant for lunch. At 12.28, the motorcade was two blocks away from Dealey Plaza. A utility clerk for Dallas County waiting on the side of the street happened to glance at the Texas School Book Depository. He spotted a slender man in the southeast corner window on the sixth floor. But the man wasn't looking in the direction of the approaching motorcade. He was turned around, facing the triple underpass that the president's car would drive under after it passed the plaza. At 12.29, five motorcycles turned the corner onto Houston Street. The crowd, eager and excited, cheered as the presidential limo rounded the bend. The car moved slowly. Nellie Connolly, the governor's wife, remarked that surely this crowd had convinced the president that Dallas loved him just like any other city. Kennedy smiled at the thought. Abraham Zapruder started up his camera as the president came into view. He was a rare sight, as there were no other press or news cameras at Dealey Plaza. The press reporters were all either waiting at the trademark or in the press vehicles eight cars back. Zapruder may not have been the only man there with a the camera, but he was the only one catching footage of the president. The first shot rang out at exactly 12.30. The crowd didn't react due to a number of false assumptions. Some thought they heard a motorcycle backfiring. Jackie Kennedy thought some children must be lighting off fireworks. The few in the crowd that recognized the sound for what it was thought it was some kind of a gun salute for the commander-in-chief. Governor Connolly, a World War II veteran and avid hunter, recognized the sound as a gunshot. He realized almost immediately that they were in the midst of an assassination attempt. The Secret Service agents also recognized the sound for what it was. They jumped into action, ready to protect the president. A high school dropout named James Worrell was standing at the side of the Texas School Book Depository. When he looked directly up, he saw the barrel of a rifle sticking out from one of the upper floors. All of this happened in under three seconds. Then, the second shot rang out. 
The bystanders saw President Kennedy jolt, then grab at his throat. It's clear almost immediately the president had been shot. In the front seat, Governor Connolly heard the gasps. From somewhere nearby, one of the Secret Service agents yelled, he's been hit. Connolly tried to twist around in his seat to get a look at the president. As he did, he felt a sharp pain in his back. When he looked down, he realized he was bleeding from an exit wound in his chest. At first, Connolly thought he'd been shot in the chest, but the bullet had actually passed through Kennedy's back and the fragments had shot through the front of the president's body and into Connolly's. Nellie Connolly saw what had happened and grabbed her husband, pulling him down, his head in her lap, shielding him from additional fire. Jackie Kennedy was not able to do the same for her husband. Though John Kennedy had also been hit, his back brace did what it was designed to. It kept Kennedy upright and immobile around his waist. He couldn't have bent over in the car if he had tried. Kellerman and Greer realized what had happened. They knew they needed to get out of there. They accelerated, heading for the cover of the triple underpass. Zapruder had caught the president's injury on camera. His initial unconscious reaction was that the president was playing along, acting as if he'd been shot as some kind of reactionary joke. It took seconds for Zapruder to understand that this was no joke. He kept filming. The president was gasping, in shock. He'd been shot through the back shoulder, but the bullet, or part of the bullet, came out through his throat. He slumped against Jackie, still upright, still alive, still vulnerable. Being of an era in which all the heroes were shot in the arm or in the leg, and the bullet didn't kill him, we were just hoping that since Kennedy was our hero, that he was shot like that and he was going to make it. It was only later that he had a fatal head wound. Everyone on the ground knew that the president had been hit, but they could see he was moving. If they moved quick, they might have been able to get him to a hospital and save his life. But then... The third shot rang out as the car approached the underpass. Eight whole seconds had passed between the first and final shots. Greer and Calloway heard the thump of something hitting the back of their seats. They didn't need to look to know it was a piece of the president's skull. Kennedy had been shot in the back of the head. The force of the shot knocked him over into Jackie's lap, where she cradled his bleeding head, doing her best to keep his brain from oozing out. Nearby, Zapruder set down his camera in shock. He had captured it all. He had seen the president go down. Agent Clint Hill jumped onto the trunk of the car just as it lurched into gear. He pulled himself forward, acting as a potential shield between Jackie and any additional fire. He heard her say, to no one in particular, they've killed my husband. I have his brains in my hand. We understand there has been a shooting. A presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man spread eagle over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. We can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. I'm in behind the motorcade, trying to follow them. It looks as though they're going to Parkland Hospital. We're on the road to Parkland at this time. The car sped to Parkland Hospital, arriving just four minutes after the shooting. There were no orderlies or gurneys waiting for them. In the time it took the Dallas PD to get a sense of things and radio the hospital, the motorcade was already there. 
The Secret Service agents grabbed their own gurneys and rushed to assist Connolly and the president. Jackie Kennedy wouldn't let them take her husband. Agent Hill tried to coax her, but she repeated over and over that John was already dead and that she wasn't leaving him. Hill saw why she wouldn't let him go. The man who just five minutes prior had been the acting president of the United States was limp in his wife's lap. His skull was in pieces. His eyes were bulging out of their sockets. Jackie didn't want any press to see him like that. Hill covered the president with his jacket and Jackie finally released him. They loaded the president on a gurney and rushed him to trauma room one. Charles Carrico was the presiding surgeon. He was only 28, still in his residency. George Shires, the chief of emergency surgery at Parkland Hospital, was away at that time. Carrico was the first man who wasn't in the motorcade to see the president. His blue skin, his spasming chest, his unresponsive pupils, the blood oozing from the wounds in his head, throat, and back. But Carrico detected a faint heartbeat. Kennedy may have been in his death throes, but Carrico tried to save him all the same. Carrico inserted a tube in Kennedy's neck to help restart his breathing, but the hole in the president's throat made that difficult. Other surgeons arrived. William Clark, a neurosurgeon, set about stopping the bleeding from the president's brain. Urologist Paul Peters helped Carrico in draining the blood out of the president's chest. Admiral George Berkeley, Kennedy's personal physician, arrived and knew immediately that there was no hope. Everything the doctors were doing was just the motions. Berkeley administered anti-inflammatories and set about arranging a blood transfusion. Outside, Jackie Kennedy struggled to get past the Secret Service agents guarding the door. She explained in no uncertain terms that she was getting in that room. She wanted to be there when her husband died. They let her in. Jackie circled the gurney, watching the doctors work on the corpse that used to be her husband. Close to 1 p.m., Father James Thompson pulled into the parking lot at Parkland Hospital. He and his fellow priest, Father Huber, were racing, quite literally, against God. Thompson had been summoned to deliver last rites to Kennedy. According to Catholic dogma, last rites must be administered before the soul leaves the body. At 1 p.m., Dr. Clark checked Kennedy's neck for a pulse. He felt nothing. The doctors agreed that, despite the fact that no one had wanted to admit it, Jackie had been right. The president had likely been killed instantly from the shot in the head. His body's mechanisms had continued on for a time, just as part of an automatic bodily function. At 1 p.m., exactly half an hour after the first shot echoed across Dealey Plaza, President John F. Kennedy was pronounced dead. Seconds after this, Father Huber burst into the operating room. He was too late. Huber wasn't going to give up. He informed the room that, though he'd been pronounced dead, Kennedy's soul had not yet left his body. Huber performed the sacraments and then moved on to comfort Jackie. Kennedy was dead, and the world had changed just like that. Before the day was over, there would be more startling revelations that shocked the people of Dallas and the people of America. 
Although this is where President Kennedy's personal story ends, the fallout from his assassination was just beginning. Across the nation, people had sat glued to their televisions and radios waiting for news. They would soon have it confirmed. John F. Kennedy was dead, and Lyndon Johnson was now the President of the United States. There was still a shooter at large. Across the country, FBI agents were being called to be on the lookout for any chatter about a communist or extremist plot to kill the president. If any of the doctors from Trauma Room 1 wondered what kind of man would shoot a president, they would soon find out. Two days after Kennedy was pronounced dead, the emergency surgery team at Parkland Hospital would be back at work, trying to save the life of Lee Harvey Oswald. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We hope you enjoyed part two of our series on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. If you're looking for more episodes or other stories of murder and crime, you can find us, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. See you next Monday. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. Thomas.